0: Hello everybody and welcome to Community Conversations here at Atlantic Health System. My name is Luke Margolis. I'm the Corporate Communications Director for Atlantic Health. And today I am excited to be joined by Dr. Christina Johnson. She is an Atlantic Medical Group Physician with Maplewood Family Medicine and a passionate community health advocate. And she is the perfect person to chat with me today about a topic uh, that is the title of our community conversation today and that is the impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. And Dr. Johnson, if you'll uh, indulge me for one sec while I catch everybody up on how the community conversation will work. Please do. All right. Mm -hmm. So for those who haven't actually seen one of these before, Dr. Johnson and I will chat for about half an hour. Uh, We will cover our uh, intended topic for today. If you miss any part of it, or you have to drop off, or your connection breaks, or whatever may happen, don't worry. The whole thing can be found on our Facebook page when it's complete. Uh, You can find it on our YouTube channel, a number of our other social media channels, on our website, atlantichealth.org. And you can watch it on TV on weekends on News 12 Plus here in New Jersey. Uh, And that would be Saturdays and Sundays from 8.30 to 9. Uh, So that's kind of the run of show. Um, I wanna also acknowledge that uh, we do have a comment section open on the window there. So feel free to um, share a thought. Um, We will try to integrate some on-topic questions as much as we can throughout the process. But I wanna acknowledge that I'm sure there are a lot of folks out there who have a lot of questions on a variety of COVID 19 related topics, not the least of which is vaccine and vaccine availability. Um, today's topic uh, is not about vaccine availability, but I want to address that topic up front for those who are interested. I suggest uh, for many people who want to learn more, you can find more at our website, atlantichealth.org/covidvaccine. COVID vaccine. It is there that you can sign up for an appointment alert. That is your first and most important step towards getting vaccinated at Atlantic Health System. When you do that, you register in our system and what we can then do is contact you when we have vaccine available to distribute. The last thing we wanna have is to schedule appointments for people with no vaccine available. That doesn't help you guys and it certainly isn't a safe practice to do. So we are booking vaccine appointments when we have vaccine to deliver. You'll be notified via email and instructed on how and when to sign up. I know folks are wondering, hey, I've signed up already and haven't gotten an alert. We have a couple hundred thousand people who have already signed up for vaccine. And when you're getting doses available to us in the single digit thousands per week, it's difficult to move through the list rapidly, but we are doing it as quickly as we can. And so while we understand the frustration, we certainly appreciate the patience. Again, if you wanna learn more about vaccine supply, go to our website, atlantichealth.org slash COVID vaccine. So again, all of that having been said, Dr. Johnson, thank you for indulging me there. We would like to get to our uh, topic of the day, um, which is the impact of COVID-19 on communities of color. I'd like to start first with a very basic straightforward question, which I think some members of our audience may even be wondering. Why is this this a relevant topic? What is it about the impact of COVID-19 on communities of color that even make this a topic um, necessary for us to have this conversation? Let's let's kind of look at it um, from a macro picture and then we can dive in more deeply.
1: So uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me and sure. hi, Facebook Live. I'm really, really excited to be here because I love community health education. My goal today is to at least provide some background information and some context so that you can be empowered to make your own medical decisions, um, especially if you're in a higher risk group. So um, part of your question is sort of asking a, a very important point, which is that we're talking about foundational information here about the United States and United States history. COVID-19, the pandemic was sort of a reckoning. And it was a reckoning because it did not cause disparities in outcome. It did not cause excess deaths. It highlighted the systems which made those excess deaths and disease possible. Okay, so root causes here are very very important and you know for those who are easily triggered I'm going to use a word that's going to be important for you to understand for how we see these differences that we see in terms of disease and outcome in certain populations and the word is racism okay and for some people it's a it's a tough word to to hear and mostly because we think of it as sort of a personally mediated kind of racism where someone just one feels one another. exactly or we may even think about it as internalized racism where someone you know sort of feels bad about themselves because they're in a particular ethnic group or in a situation or conversely that they feel that they are superior or better than someone else because of their, exactly okay. um, so but that's not the kind of racism that we're talking about because racism is a system. It really is a system. And it's a system that assigns value to people based on their race. Now, we all know from the Human Genome Project that we are 99.9% the same. But in certain societies, we've created these differences um, in opportunity, in structural availability of things like healthcare, care, access to housing, access to jobs that are safe. And because of those differences, it's caused these differences that we see now in the outcomes in something like a COVID-19. Because before COVID-19, there was heart disease and differential outcomes in heart disease. Um, there's colon cancer. So, so we already saw these things sort of in the soil, baked into the soil as it were. And so COVID-19 just highlighted what was already there.
0: I, I, I've heard the phrase social determinants of health and those right. are things that we've spoken about in the past. It sounds like there is an integration of that concept into the broader structure you Exactly,
1: you're exactly. And what we're talking about in, in terms of how racism applies to those social determinants and I like to think of social determinants as this. Most of us think that our health, like how we're doing, how we're feeling physically, how well we are, is mostly just based on our own choices. What we eat, how much we exercise, how many donuts we happen to be eating. A little eating. self-determination. You know, the COVID 20 pounds that we just gained. You know, we, most of us think that it's that, but that's only about 30% of what contributes to someone's overall health and then a population's overall health. Think about your day when you woke up this morning, you got up, you know, stretched, got ready to go to work or stay home or dig yourself out, but you lived in a neighborhood Mm -hmm. and the neighborhood has a location. And so is there a lot of pollution? in that neighborhood? Is there a highway trafficking through your neighborhood with a lot of um, fumes from cars? Are there adequate schools in your neighborhood? Adequate transportation? Do you have access to job opportunities in the neighborhood that you live in? And food choices. And food choices, exactly. So the answers to these questions were sort of structured in how we have set up society to benefit some and to explicitly disadvantage others. And so that's what leads to the social determinants of health differences that we see. So when I see a patient walking into my office, I see the whole patient. I don't just see the medical issue that they're coming in for. This patient comes in with a context and a history and interactions with healthcare providers and access. So maybe their insurance just changed. Now they have to find brand new healthcare providers. Maybe they have difficulty getting to the office and they're late because there's no transportation for them where they live. Or the bus route has changed and now they they have trouble getting to the office all or I'm telling them to sort of eat a healthier diet and there's no places they're in a food desert so there's no healthy food around them. So all of those factors contribute to one's overall health and they can also contribute to the entire population.
0: What has been the practical result of that structure on the way that we have seen and and stipulating that it is broader than the the impacts are are, I'm sure affecting a number of other health conditions but as it relates to COVID-19 what has been the the result of that, there are statistics here that we can share, but before getting into those, I'm curious of just what your impression has been on how COVID has um, exacerbated these problems.
1: So then, so then the list of the exacerbations, it, 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 it follows. So you have a respiratory pathogen, COVID-19. So if you cough or sneeze or breathe too hard or sing, that's how it spreads. And so the first is why we're wearing masks. So the first step is how close are you to other people um, to whom you might be exposed? If you're living in a population dense area, which is often where populations of certain ethnic groups are relegated, Mm -hmm. then you can't even spread out enough. You live in an apartment. Um, Your access to housing differs. Um, because you can tell a person to isolate, but if they live in an apartment with five other people in a two-bedroom apartment, exactly. So those housing differences were based on policies in the 1940s that created some advantages for some people and benefits that led them to to have access to housing and others um, were, were excluded. From those benefits. When it comes to education, the same thing. So, health literacy is very important in understanding why wearing a mask is so important, why social distancing is so important. And, um, you know, our educational system is really based on, again, where you live. You know, so if you don't have a lot of access to good education, then your level of health literacy tends to be poorer. Um, We can talk about your job opportunities. So, often uh, over the history of the United States, certain ethnic groups and ethnic populations were relegated to certain industries and not allowed to be a part of other industries. So for example, right now, um, it's not that African-Americans have not been allowed to become physicians, for example, but the numbers of us who are able to join into that um, educational pathway is so low. The bars are so high, not not the academic bars, the financial bars, the investment in time, um where we get our education um and how much we're being guided along pathways where we have potential so african americans now only represent about 3.6 percent of teaching physicians this is across the united states nationwide right Mm -hmm. and um about uh four percent five percent nationwide and six percent are um hispanic americans or latinx so um When you have these barriers in education, then you can see how people's interpretation of health and healthcare policy may differ based on the populations in which they live. Um, And also their their job opportunities, to kind of circle back to that, sort of led to um, what we have seen with COVID-19, which is that people have different um, exposure risks. So, So so if if, I work in a field, if you work in in healthcare, if you work in transportation, if you work out at the airport, then your risk is higher than someone who works in management or sales. Or does work administrative remotely. work and he can right. work remotely. And for for remote work or even for telehealth access to see a doctor during the pandemic when the offices were closed, for example, you have to have Wi Fi. You have to have broadband access. Which I think most
0: people sort of assume is pretty ubiquitous. They
1: they assume that it's ubiquitous, but it's not. It really depends on where you live and the ability for you to afford um, broadband access and we're seeing a sort of another model of that in what we're seeing in education now with children that they, there's a differential amount of access to broadband services in some communities it was they had to start from scratch getting children computers um, broadband access in order for them to even have access to education so you can see how just stepwise before you even leave the house you know these are the factors that contributed to these numbers that we see
0: so some of the um, data that's come out recently brings some of this into Startling um, clarity and review. At mm. least it, it has for me, and I'm sure for for many of our audience. Um, the um, this is according to an article that recently ran in um, uh, uh, New Jersey Spotlight. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a the state has compiled some preliminary data. It's part of the New Jersey State Health Assessment mm-hmm. for the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, in it, they determined um, that COVID nineteen uh, was the number one single largest cause of death for african-american hispanic and asian americans in new jersey last year Mm -hmm. Um, particularly stunning uh, for me the statistic was because we have to realize that for the first nearly two and a half months of the year nobody died from COVID in new jersey Mm -hmm. and so yet in three quarters of the year give or take Mm -hmm. This disease became the number one cause of death for those individuals, for those for those groups of, of people. You do a lot of um, present, presenting in the community, speaking in the community, talking in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, how frightening has this been for those? What, what are you hearing from people when you talk to them about the danger that COVID nineteen can present? Is it has it resonated? Is there still a bit of a "it'll never happen to me" type of thing? What what's been the reaction you've heard from people mm-hmm. who've been coping with this? frighteningly dangerous
1: virus. Right, and and you know, it's, it's interesting because what you're alluding to in part is, uh, I think it was either that article or another article that mentioned that, you know, about 30%, 31% of African Americans have someone that they know, either a close friend, a family member who has been affected by or who died from COVID-19. And that's part of what that statistic is alluding to. Um, when patients come into my office, um, that's one of the first questions that I ask them, is whether or not they've had any um, personal um, you know, experience with dealing with COVID-19 themselves or with family members who have died. And what we're talking about is a form of grief and stress that I think even beyond this pandemic, the country is going to have to really deal with. Um, uh, pr- these communities, in particular the African-American and the Hispanic community, and one statistic that's maybe not there because their population is a lot lower in New Jersey, but nationwide this is this is certainly the case for Native American or American Indian populations um, where the proportion of people who become infected and then who die is, is so wildly disproportionate to their sort of population levels in general. And um, I think what it means is that um, Again, kind of returning to that term of reckoning. That's what a lot of families are doing. They're really, in a positive way, trying to stay connected with each other, trying to, and and this is certainly characteristic of many um, uh, minority communities, um, turning sort of inward to take care of each other. So um, where information is available, sharing it amongst themselves um, and with each other, um, and then just supporting one another but kind of returning to what i said earlier about sort of the sort of structural issues that may have led to that statistic because when the pandemic first started um and the lockdown happened that first around march that Mm -hmm. lockdown happened so people were terrified they you know didn't want to stay they they just didn't want to go out and i remember i'm a frontline provider so i see patients in the hospital hospital as well and so i remember just being on empty roads going in and out of the hospital going back and forth to work and then slowly that that grew in order for you to stay home you have to have enough money saved up to pay for your bills to pay for your rent and while some places had rent moratoriums you still had to put that money aside because that rent still has to be paid you need money to buy food you have to pay for your um, you know your utilities, your medications, all those things. So um, there's a huge, again, built from this foundation that we see historically, there's a, a significant wealth gap um, between these populations. So African Americans, for example, sort of bring in about 60% on the dollar for what uh, Caucasian Americans usually do. But the wealth gap between the two communities, uh, African Americans have, have about 5% as much wealth as the larger uh, ethnic population, Caucasians, do, and part of that is directly attributable to some of these policies that created differences in housing access, job access. Um, that statistic, in particular, from the 1940s, from you know housing programs in the 1940s. So, um, uh, kind of, I took your small question and enlarged it. But you well, know, I think we're
0: finding that with this issue that happens.
1: That's what frequently. it is. So, so yeah. that's what. So that's what families are dealing with. They're sort of they're dealing with generational reckonings and and sort of trying to to stay connected generationally they're trying to maintain finances and and stay solvent Um, so they're dealing with a lot and that's what they're walking into the office with when we meet them
0: we want there to be a um a a, a, something that folks can take from this and apply to their lives sort of a of a a useful tool we want these conversations to be and I think that for some who hear these statistics, um, the mortality that, we, that we've seen in, in, from this virus and the impact that it's had, the disproportionate impact that it's had, that there is an inevitability to some of this that, you know, it doesn't really matter what we do because, you know, this is, the virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. Mm-hmm. What conversations are you having with your patients and, and when you present uh, to communities um, to inspire some sort of action that people can take? You know, what, what is the guidance you're providing for people? as we continue to work our way through this pandemic. And, and if it's about the vaccine, we can get into the vaccine because mm-hmm. there's a lot of conversation to be had there. But more broadly, is, do you, are you combating a sense of inevitability when you try to educate communities about what this virus is and how it affects them?
1: So actually no, because also characteristic of a lot of these communities is this sort of um, spark of hope in the community and a perseverance. So um, when I'm talking to patients and they come into the office and they're you know feeling stress and devastation from COVID, they also really want to improve their overall health. They want to reduce those modifiable risk factors, their weight, uh, blood pressure if it's not controlled, COPD, if they smoke, they want to stop smoking. Mm-hmm. So then we turn what is sort of, or what could be thought of as a sort of overwhelming negative into, you know, a hopeful positive that, mm-hmm if you can, um, we will work with you as part of your medical team, as part of your advocates to just um, sort of inspire you and to support you um, in achieving your best health. And that's usually where the conversation starts and we move forward from there.
0: For folks who um, may not have a a physician that they have a relationship with or are looking to build those levels of of relationships, um, our website, has something called Find a Doctor on it, and um, if you just go to AtlanticHealth.org, you can see that there. Uh, Dr. Johnson, you're on there. We have a a number of physicians on there, and folks can find uh, individuals closer to where they live, um, uh, individuals who may speak the same language as they do. There's a lot of um, useful resources on there for people to find uh, health resources um, because Atlantic Health System is committed to a lot of those community health programs that are both taking place at the doctor to patient level, and then broader uh, with some of the resources we have here as a system. So something that- And I've been
1: really excited about uh, Atlantic Health's their response to COVID-19. So we weren't just sort of left to just take care of our patients, figure things out. Um, We have so much information that's available for patients. You mentioned the website as well, but now we have access to uh, a larger uh, set of social workers, case managers. So when patients are presenting with more than just their particular medical issue. Maybe they have food insecurity now. Maybe they need to speak to a social worker about how what they need to do about their housing. And so we have those resources available at the primary care level and beyond. And um, that's something that's just grown since the pandemic has started.
0: I wanna to pivot to vaccine because a Politico ran an article um, recently that I think, again, brings in the statistics around this whole discussion are, are eye-opening for, for many folks who are hearing them for the first mm-hmm. time. Uh, according to Politico, um, 5% of vaccinations across the country yeah. have gone to African-Americans, mm-hmm. five. Mm-hmm. Um, African-Americans make up a considerably larger portion of the population than 5%, which mm-hmm. indicates that we have uh, a distribution issue. And whether that's um, on the delivery side, where mm-hmm. a vaccine is not being made available to communities of color, or on the other side where there is um, a demand issue, where individuals are not seeking it out, um, we have a challenge here that we have to resolve. Mm-hmm. What, in your opinion, is driving this? And and I know there's a historical component to that, so I wanted to save some time to talk about that Mm -hmm. and address it. But let's start first with what your opinion, what do you think is driving that that level of that low percentage of adoption?
1: So I I think that um, there's a significant amount of, um, I I call it earned medical mistrust um, with um, certain population groups and medical professionals for ph- the pharmaceutical industry, um, and I say that it's earned because there is a long-standing history of experimentation, um, and we're not talking about sort of things in the eighteen hundreds. We're talking about things that ended in nineteen seventy-two or nineteen seventy-four. You know, recent different, history, relatively. Re- recent. Oh yes, recent history. And remember, um, hospitals were still des- still segregated in nineteen sixties. So you know we're, we're we're talking about really a modern phenomenon that we're still dealing with for a few hundred years or so. You know, I'm of sure. of sort of er, an earned sort of mistrust um, between a lot of ethnic groups, medical providers, um, medical establishments in in general. So um, I think that some of that is driving it. And 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 in, a, and in a practical sense, some people, regardless of ethnicity, just have questions about well, how come it. How come this vaccine was developed so quickly? Sure, the and process. It was, and is it really safe? Is it really effective? And so those. What are What do you just, tell people when they ask that? Oh, I love that question. <laughs> that's um, called a setup question. Yes, that's a setup. So I love that question in part because when we think about U.S. history, and I and I use this little story. Um, some of us in any room will remember, you know, friends or family members having like mumps or coming down with measles and then there's a certain point at which that generation and the subsequent generation knew nothing of it anymore and the same thing in my generation without telling my age um, had everyone had chicken pox right yeah everyone everyone you know um, was scratching itching I they have. had chicken pox yeah. parties the whole thing kids now if you were to put them in a bathtub with oatmeal would call Child Protective Services <laughs> they would say what, what are you doing like they have no idea chicken pox is because we have this well-established vaccine program so part of the reason that this this happened so quickly is because once the genetic material from the virus was known once it was known how this virus makes itself most vaccine companies or many vaccine companies around the world turned their existing machinery programming researchers, um, laboratory tests, they, t- they turn everything into the production of an, a safe and effective COVID vaccine. And so the vaccines that are currently, can, do you want me to go into this now? We, we can do it, yeah. Let's, I mean, I, let's go. want to keep people updated. So yeah, the vaccines that are currently um, approved by the FDA, the mm-hmm. Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, they underwent all of the steps of the approval process. So these they, they started, that the genetic material came out in two thousand the end of twenty nineteen. So they started January, February, March. They were already the, the the you know the gears were already turning on this. So they've done the preclinical trials and looked at things under the microscope. They've moved into they moved into the animal studies so they have mouse studies and primate studies. Then they moved into phase zero trial so there's like one person, one human just to make sure everything is safe and they get that dose. Then they moved into phase two, three, and so the the product that you see on the market has completed what it they would have it that. didn't skip any steps and in every vaccine that's coming down the pike, they're made slightly differently, but what's coming down the pike has to go through that through that process.
0: and were individuals from some of the communities we've talked about included in some of this, I guess for for some of the skepticism around this, how inclusive was the work done to get these these things? Right? I
1: actually thought that the companies did you know, they didn't do a bad job at actually incorporating communities of color. Um, So for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, the numbers are, uh, uh, they're roughly equivalent of um, about 9% African-American participation in both trials. And higher numbers um, somewhere, it's it's either like 14 or 20% of Hispanic Americans uh who participated in both trials. And so we're talking about the phase 3 trials. So we're talking about 38,000 people in the Pfizer vaccine and 30,000 people in the Moderna vaccine. Sizable group. And so the the safety profile and efficacy was measured all throughout that trial and then the trial is ongoing. So the reason it's in the market is because people got that second shot and then 2 months later they evaluated the safety, the efficacy. What were the side effects? How, how were people doing? Um, and, and that is why it was sort of um, that emergency use authorization um, was allowed to sort of go through and the vaccines hit the market. It's because they still have to hit the safety and efficacy targets. Um, and they still have to, to sort of have a representative enough population to, to deem it safe enough for, the, for general use.
0: When um, when you have talked with individuals, because um, for those who may not know, uh, Doctor Johnson does a lot of presenting in the community. Um, when you do these presentations to, to um, civic groups, community groups, uh, 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 clergy, congregations, uh, do you take a lot of questions about side effects, results, like what you know? Do what do I have to be concerned about if I have an autoimmune disease, mm-hmm. or you know what what um, what do I need to be worried about? moving forward for the rest of my life if I get this vaccine. What, do you take any questions about that issue?
1: I do, and then I go into detail about the answers. All right. Well, we, <laughs> we have a couple minutes left. Oh, really? Uh, well, I guess what I mean to say
0: okay. is, is, um, is there anything in your professional opinion mm-hmm. um, that should give an individual pause uh, about seeking out the vaccine? Or, or, or what, what are the circumstances under which you would think a person um, should feel comfortable in, in getting it?
1: so um there's two questions that every patient and this is is again kind of circling back to the empowerment piece two questions you need to ask yourself well maybe three one is have you had any reactions to vaccines in the past or to a component of a particular vaccine so maybe it wasn't um you know it it wasn't necessarily the the agent that you were being um that you were um, receiving but maybe uh, a, a liquid a chemical something in the vaccine itself and if that's an issue, then you can go and look up. Actually, the New York Times keeps a very, very um, user friendly, um, uh, uh, patient friendly. It's very easy to un- understand. And, they, and you can go to the New York Times or you can look up the Pfizer and Moderna information on the FDA website. The you can look at the ingredients. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a few fats, a little bit of sugar, a little bit of salt and the virus. So that's for the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. Those are the components. And so if you've not had any of those vaccine reactions, then you need to ask yourself two more questions. Question number one is that given your exposure, given your, uh, the industry that you work in, given your personal risk factors, are you obese, do you smoke, do you have an, uh, a disease that um, makes you immunocompromised, did you have an organ transplant, um, are you older um, and just at risk because of your age? Um, given all of your personal factors, is your risk of getting COVID and having severe COVID illness worse than getting the vaccine. Most of the side effects related to the vaccine are sight reactions. So your arms a little bit sore. Some people have a little bit of like an elevation in temperature uh, or a fever. Um, Some people get headaches. So I got the vaccine. December 19th I got my first one and 21 days later I got the second and I had a little bit of arm soreness that first shot and the second shot and I had a little bit of headache after the first shot and that is it. How
0: long did it go away? It went away shortly thereafter. The headache
1: went away in like three days um, but it wasn't like all day long. I just kind of had a little bit of a headache. I took some Tylenol and I was fine. Okay. Um, so you have to ask yourself about your risk. And so is your risk of having really severe COVID-19 illness because of all your risk factors really high and is that risk that you're taking in getting COVID-19 worse than your risk of getting the vaccine side effects that we see? And what, and what the studies actually showed was that um, most of the, the, the side effects um, in terms of the populations that they tested is they kind of looked at the data of under 55 and then over 55. And most of the more severe side effects, meaning, you know, they really had real arm soreness, like it was really sore, yeah, you know, like, um, music, yeah. was in the, um, under 55 age group so yep. they they have more robust immune systems so they tended to have sort of stronger mm-hmm. adverse reactions but none of them died and of the people in the trials who actually got covid um so many fewer people got covid in the treatment arm and none went to the hospital and died Zero. Zero. so so i so i think you have to weigh your risk and so if your risk of these, these side effects from the vaccine is really high, like you really are you know, super allergic to the little lipid that's in there, then okay. So then you have to still use those layers of protection, the distancing, the mask, the hand washing, yeah. staying away from crowds, all of those things. But if your risk of having COVID-19 and getting severe disease and ending up in the hospital and dying is worse, then get the vaccine.
0: Doesn't get any more cut and dry than that folks. Dr. Johnson, we are up on our half an hour, and you and I could do this a lot longer, I'm (laughs) sure. Um, But I want to thank you for having this conversation, and I want to thank those of our audience who tuned in to watch. Uh, If you missed any of it, uh, the full thing will be available on our Facebook page, uh, on our other social media pages, on our website, AtlanticHealth.org, and on News 12 Plus. Saturdays and Sundays from 8.30 to 9. Um, Dr. Christina Johnson is an Atlantic Medical Group physician with Maplewood Family Medicine. You can find out more about her on our Find a Doctor on AtlanticHealth.org. My name is Luke Margolis. I'm the Corporate Communications Director for Atlantic Health. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.